there, and welcome back to The City Speaks. I'm your host, Spark City, and this episode is going to theme around dichotomies. Dichotomies are, or at least dichotomies as situations are things that are presented as though, you know, it can either be one outcome or another. And I'm going to take apart some dichotomies that I think are important, uh, and well, they have varying degrees of importance, but we're going to look at two of them today. The first of which is going to be Xbox, Xbox versus PlayStation. So when I was younger, you know, when I was in grade school, I can remember this. Uh, this exact conversation I'm about to bring up happened when I was in grade five. So I guess I was 11. When I was younger, my classmates and I would like constantly bicker, you know, as you do, as kids do, about which is better, Xbox or PlayStation. You know, I I used sales figures as a mic drop, you know, I was like, oh, it's just that I've sales figures that I'd heard, you know, PlayStation's outselling Xbox 10 to 1 or whatever. And then, you know, some of my friends would fire back with, yeah, but like I went over to my friend's house and we watched a movie one time and they pulled the DVD out of the PlayStation and it was completely destroyed. Because, you know, like, <laughs> like these machines are like torture devices on the inside or something. And I can't remember why I thought this was super important, but I, I it was probably likely due to just, you know, wanting the thing that I was into to be the cool thing or the best thing. Uh, and so, you know, I've, I've sort of like le- left that in the dust because, you know, I turned 12 or whatever. Um, didn't really think about it for a few years. And most of my adult life has thus far been spent off of social media. Obviously, recently, it's I've been on Twitter and, and stuff like Discord and all that stuff. But, you know, I didn't get Facebook until really late and I never really used it that much. I, I only ever really used Instagram to post clips and I stopped that like years ago. And like I said, barely used Twitter up until relatively recently. So imagine my surprise when I get onto Twitter and I see grown-ass adults still bickering about which console is better. And they've come up with names for each other. Like if you're an Xbox fan, you're an X-Bot. If you're a PlayStation fan, you're a pony. I don't really get it. But anyway, so these things are presented as dichotomies, right? Xbox or PS, which one is better? You know, one of them has to be better, right? Like that's, that's sort of the inherent implication of a dichotomy is that pick one, one has to be better. So which one is it? And as is the case with a lot of these dichotomies that are either completely irrelevant or sort of more of a social nature, it's two groups of people fighting about something. They only really exist to serve the ego of each side. You know, like when I was a kid, the whole idea of me wanting to prove that my console was the best was because I wanted to be into the best thing, or I wanted to be into what was the coolest thing. You know, it's, so everybody can feel good about their purchase as an adult, I guess, is how this manifests, you know, after you turn 12. Um, because if you look at it, like functionality of consoles has been really similar across competing members of any given generation. Like it can play games, obviously, DVDs, it can browse the internet, it can stream, it has apps now. Like basically there haven't been really any generations, any generations where one console has had like vastly superior functionality. Like, they can all play games of roughly this. I mean, you could look at the PS3 and be like, hey, the PS3 could play Blu-ray. And that was a huge thing back then. But the PS3 was also very particularly designed and had, like, crazy architecture, which is why most devs didn't want to work on it. Um, The exact opposite of the PS2. So the main differences between consoles, essentially, are the exclusives. At least between, uh, you know, PlayStation and Xbox. Nintendo's kind of in a league of its own. It's, it's separate, like it's a completely separate thing because they don't make like top of the line hardware, they make a cheaper console, they're carried on the on the strength of their first party IP, which is legendary, obviously. Um, so I'm not going to really be talking about them, I'm talking the dichotomy is between Xbox and PlayStation. And so the main differences between these two consoles for the last few generations have mainly been exclusives, like which games, and so obviously which games are better, you know. 
And most would agree, I think, that exclusives are kind of toxic for the industry. You can see this on, on both sides. Sony buys a studio, everybody molds about it. Microsoft buys Bethesda, everybody molds about it because, you know, you're worried that it's going to be a non-competitive industry in a few years. But, you know, beyond like petty squabbling about like exclusives, like, and, and most people would agree we should do away with exclusives anyway. You know, when I sit there and I, I play Bloodborne, I'm not sitting there like, oh, I'm so cool because I can play Bloodborne and these these players who have Xbox can't play it or, or Switch can't play it. I'm, I want people to be able to play Bloodborne. I've been so pumped to see like Horizon Zero Dawn and God of War and Marvel Spider-Man, if you're into that, come to PC because more people get to play these games and that's good for the industry as a whole. So what ends up happening is like by arguing like, oh, my console is better, my console is better, you're essentially doing a brand's job for it in terms of establishing brand loyalty. And you're almost inducing like consumer side non-competition because if you sit there and you're like, well, you know, Sony's terrible and everything they do is terrible and I'm never going to buy a Sony product. That means you're only ever going to buy an Xbox product, a Microsoft product. And as a result, you create this situation where if enough people do this and enough people get polarized, neither of the companies have to compete for their consumer base, which is terrible. Every company should always have to compete with the consumer base. Companies don't want to compete because it's expensive and difficult and you can fail. But for the consumer, who is, you know, kind of important in this equation, I would say, they benefit grossly or like massively off of competition. That's that's when you get, if you get a competitive market, that's the whole argument for capitalism is like, you want this competition so that the consumer benefits. So having, you know, a Venn diagram where neither of the circles actually overlap, you got one camp in Xbox, one camp in PlayStation. I'm aware you're never going to get that perfect overlap where the circles are the same, essentially. But you want as much of that overlap as possible, I think, to uh, to stimulate a competitive market. And I don't understand why people get so excited to hold their consoles exclusives over people's heads. And this is the thing of like, oh, the dichotomy of Xbox versus PlayStation. It shouldn't be that. It should be... You know, like, this is why I'm very careful. You know, I've been a PlayStation guy my whole life, not because I don't want to buy an Xbox, but because I have, you know, reasons to stay on PlayStation. You know, like, I have the trophies that I really like to hunt. I know there's achievements, but I prefer the way that Sony does trophies. Um, I like a lot of the exclusives that Sony has. Bloodborne's great. All the ones that I mentioned coming to PC are great. Um, And I'm not too in the loop on Xbox's exclusives, but, you know, like, Halo and Gears are the two biggest ones in my mind. And Gears is done now, and I'm not a huge fan of shooters, so it, it doesn't really tickle my pickle, so to speak, if you want to put it that way. I don't understand why people are like, oh, yeah, like, we have Halo, you don't even have Halo, you pleb. And it's like, why are, why are you happy about that? Wouldn't you want more people to play this amazing game so that you could have more people to talk about how amazing the game is? I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand why, and this is sort of a theme with dichotomies in general, although the second one we're going to talk about today doesn't really fall into this camp but there's a weird obsession with society as a whole about being on like the winning team you know as ever as if it's all like a game of sports and it leads to polarization which i think is a, a net negative for all involved like i said you you breed a non-competitive consumer environment where people aren't going to branch out outside their comfort zones which leads to stagnation elsewhere in the industry as well because why would i develop a new style of game if i only am going to have if people just want the same stuff recycled over and over everybody made fun of sports sports fans for years for you know buying every year's madden or every year's nhl and being like haha lamal like the games are completely the same but now people ironically go out and buy like assassin's creed games and, and call of duty games and it's like you guys are doing the same thing like these games are just it's barely iterating on an established formula you know, the, yes, there's there's minor surface tweaks, but the main gameplay is the same. 
reach outside your comfort zone a little bit and maybe the industry won't stagnate. But anyway, obviously I can't blame that all on all on the consumer. I do think the consumer is, is a large driver of stuff like this, but this is my point is like, I don't think, I think in a lot of cases, dichotomies aren't solved by picking a side. And this is the filthy centrist in me, of course. And this is where everybody gets all high and mighty and goes like, oh, centrist, take a stand, man. Stop fence sitting, take a stand. It's like, that's not how the world works most of the time. Obviously, in some cases it is, but in Xbox versus PlayStation, it's definitely not how the world works. And if that is how the world works, I don't really want to participate in that. So I'm going to do my own thing. So let's move on to the second dichotomy of the day. Obviously, that was a bit of a shorter one, but this this that's sort of like a surface level one. You know, that's that, that's one where the consequences aren't as dire because all it is is limiting an industry whose primary function is entertainment. And that's fine. We can live without another entertainment medium, you know. Obviously, I love gaming and I don't want to see it fail, but, you know, if, if people, if the purchasing power tends towards that direction, I mean, what am I going to do about it? I can just keep playing the games that I enjoy and, and try to inspire people to play the games that I enjoy for the reasons that I enjoy them, and that's the best I can do. So it's not really as fundamental. This next one, I think, actually is quite fundamental to a lot of people, um, and it's hard work versus luck as a determining factor for success. The The classic you know, the question is like, what matters more? Hard work or luck? You know, what percentage of your success can be attributed to hard work versus luck? I had a conversation with this about, uh, about my brother. Uh, well, with my brother about this a couple days ago, and it's been on my mind for a few days. So I figured I'd give my take on it. I already gave my take to him and neither of us were budging on our, on our respective positions. So the question is, is hard work or luck more important to your success? And again, I don't like when this is presented as a dichotomy because, a, situations are all organic. You know, you're going to have like some situations are 80% luck, 20% skill. Some situations are 400% power of will. Some situations are 5% pleasure, 50% pain. But anyway, you're going to have situations where the hard work versus luck for any given isolated scenario is different. So trying to say like, oh, over, you know, you can make estimate a trend over time, but you're never going to be able to like, oh, it's 60, 40. Oh, it's 50, 50. Oh, it's 100, zero. You know, there's definitely cases where folks have had to battle tooth and nail to escape whatever adverse circumstances to succeed. I mean, you look at somebody like Jerry Rice, who I can talk about later if I remember to, you know, he came from abject poverty and, and became one of the most, you know, influential and, and probably the best wide receiver of all time. I would say most people would still agree with that. And there's folks who've never done an honest day's work in their life and still fail upwards the whole way, which is kind of the trust fund kid stereotype, you know, I can't name any offhand, but you can probably think of a few yourself. Um, so like I said, I think the ratio of hard work to luck is constantly in flux, which is why it feels kind of foolish to try and value one or the other over one of the, one or the other to say like, oh, luck is more valuable or hard work is more valuable. And when you blame an outcome solely on luck, it allows you to get away with thinking that your approach to the outcome was perfect. And the only reason why you didn't succeed in a specific event was due to something that you couldn't control. When in reality, this isn't usually the case for somebody's day to day. I do want to make the point right now. I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about like social, uh, social issues or advantages. You know, I'm not talking about like being born into poverty or racial discrimination or people with disabilities or anything like that. I'm not saying like, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't blame luck for everything because, you know, I, I sort of think of life as a, as a very long, you know, roughly a lifelong, if you will, game of poker. Um, and if you, there is obviously luck involved in poker and there's obviously skill involved in poker. And the way you determine if somebody is good, quote unquote, quote unquote, good poker player or not, is you play a large amount of hands. And life, in my opinion, is a 
large amount. Like the more, the most hands you're ever going to play in any game because you can't do anything longer than your own life. Crazy concept, at least that we know of. So you are like, if you think of every situation, every decision you get made and every action you have to take as a, as a separate hand of poker, I think what, I think it, it, it has to be a combination. I think it's a chicken and egg thing in a lot of cases. You know, like there are situations where if you don't have luck, it doesn't matter how hard you're going to work. But if you don't work hard, it doesn't matter how lucky you get. You know, the classic like, oh, the struggling actor who's just, you know, waiting for his big break, I think is kind of a tired, tired line, you know, um, because you can you can always take examples from either side. Look at the person who wins like most of the time a lottery winner goes bankrupt and they got about as lucky as you could hope, but they didn't understand what they had to do. They didn't understand the approach they needed to take to sustain that wealth and the work they had to do to sustain that wealth. Um, in my own anecdotal experience, however, I, I watch a lot of people use luck or something they can't control as a way of thinking to sort of... Um, absolve themselves of any accountability for for what occurred for the event that occurred you know this might be linked to the survival instinct of trying to make our lives easier constantly which is kind of the goal of every major human invention ever and that's not a bad thing like wanting to make your life easier isn't a bad thing inherently um you know i would say most folks especially in the western world at least most folks quality of life is very much better than it was even just 200 years ago due to inventions and advances in medicine and technology and stuff like that most people's quality of life is is vastly improved you know the farther back or you know the farther forward in history you go and so this isn't a bad thing but the negative face of this coin is on a personal level on a on a single individual person level is when you don't face your own failures and you don't constantly iterate on what you could have done or the things that you could control, if you if you just externalize all the issues, you're going to lose your drive to improve, I think. And you, I've seen this a lot in my life. Obviously, this is purely anecdotal. I don't want anybody saying like, you can't make generalizations. But from what I've seen, um, this is sort of a, a, a common pattern with with people that I've seen and this is I'm not saying everybody suffers from this but it's very easy to let yourself slide into like ah oh, man like well if I had just if something had just gone my way it would have been better you know something would have changed double lifts advice in league you know that I talked about in my in my episode three um you know the 99 percent rule I won't call it a rule but the 99 percent idea of like when you die in League of Legends, 99% of the time there was something you could have done to play the situation better and I try to apply this in life as well if, if something doesn't go my way in life, 99% of the time, there was some, or some amount of the time, the majority of the time, let's say, there is something I could have done. And if there is something I couldn't have, could have done, I should be doing that rather than saying like, oh, I should have just gotten lucky. You know, the poker example really fits here. You're of course, of course, you're going to have bad beats in life. And, and this is why I'm not saying luck doesn't matter at all. I'm critiquing luck here because a lot of the time, I think saying you know, for the people who have brains, I think saying, you know, unlucky all the time is, is, is a way that leads you or is something that leads you to a negative pattern of thinking that can really hamper your ability to develop as a person. You're sometimes you're going to get dealt pocket aces, which is the best starting two cards in Texas Hold'em poker. And you're, and the other guy is going to get dealt or another person is going to get dealt a two, seven offsuit, which is the worst hand to start with in poker. And you're going to lose that hand. Sometimes that's called a bad beat. The flop comes down as three sevens. You've basically lost right from the get go. Sometimes that's going to happen. Absolutely. I am not discounting that at all. Um, but the majority of the time and over the course of your life, if things are not consistently going your way, 
if, if, you know, you're getting passed over for promotions or you're not being able to interview well or something like that, you need to look more critically, I think, at your approach to these things. Obviously, I don't know you and I shouldn't be saying you because, but I'm saying in this situation, of course, it's very easy to be like, well, that, that, you know, if, if I'm going for a promotion, well, the manager just doesn't like me, you know, but so what? You know, like it's very easy to sit there in the in the moment and say like, ah, oh, yeah, this is why. And it wasn't my fault and stuff like that. But it's not helpful. It doesn't help you with anything. It give it it. I, I shouldn't say it doesn't help you with anything. Give yourself five minutes to be sad. This is kind of what I did when I got passed over a whole bunch of promotions at my old job. And I'll explain this in a moment. Give yourself a few minutes to be sad for sure. You have to process the disappointment of not getting what you wanted, but then you have to move on. Life's going to keep going. It's very difficult to learn how to improve or think critically if, if one becomes over-reliant on blaming luck for their lack of success. It also kind of requires a snapshot-style approach to viewing your life, viewing an event as a distinct thing that kind of exists within a vacuum, and ignoring all the context that precedes or follows these events. So, for example, somebody I know had a job and was grinding retail, you know, years and years trying to get out, couldn't get out. A job opened up in the retail store. They're working at Walmart and a job opened up above them so that they could move up. They interviewed for it. They did not get it. It's very easy to then sit there and say like, that's really unlucky. Like nothing I could have done. Everything, blah, 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 blah. But what instead happened was this person was then motivated to go find a job somewhere else. And they did. And they found a full-time job somewhere else. And that job didn't really work out. But then they moved to another job. And that job was a very secure government position where they're they're able to develop their career gain valuable experience and have an incredibly stable and relatively lucrative life, you know? And so, yes, you could look at not getting that job as unlucky at Walmart, not getting, not getting that promotion as unlucky. Sure. But then you're ignoring all the context of what happened after. So is you then getting the job in the government luck after that? I don't, I don't think so. And so when you have something where depending on how much context you add, judging it as lucky or unlucky can change makes blaming stuff on luck incredibly um, unreliable, I guess. You know, discoverability on Twitch is another example of this. Again, all personal level, this is this is not the way it is for everybody, of course. There are people who are working hard and, and, and just getting unlucky for sure. But for the most part, the people who complain about discoverability on Twitch are not are, are hoping against hope that the only reason that they're not succeeding is because Twitch isn't forcing their stream on somebody else. And... Discoverability on Twitch is a, is a super interesting conversation. Could Twitch be doing, you know, different things? Absolutely. I proposed a couple of things when I, I, you know, did some surveys for them or they asked me to do some surveys. So I did. And my main idea of like sort of a more organic way of, of increasing discoverability beyond just like a browse clips tab or something would be like make rivals events smaller, but make them more geared towards the game, the community of the game that is actually playing. Like how many times have you seen a, a Twitch Rivals event where very few, if any, people from the game that is being played are actually represented in the scene. Most of the time, it's just giant creators because Twitch is trying to sell ads and trying to push product and all the sponsors want their product in front of a bunch of different eyes. So maybe instead of taking that approach, you instead try to bolster your platform from within by making a smaller event. It doesn't have to be, you know, like 100K for like a small speedrunning game. But if you're going to do like, do an SM64, Super Mario 64 event, you know, make it a smaller prize pool, but invite people who actually care about the game and are good at it. And, you know, the people you want to see or the people I want to see anyway. So, you know, again, this is all personal. 
But so that could be an idea for discoverability. But if you're going to sit there and whine that like, oh, Twitch doesn't have a good way of browsing clips. It's like, guys, that's not the main issue with why your stream isn't growing. I would say like most of the time in most of the examples I've seen. And I do this a lot where I'll see somebody complaining about it on Twitch or on Twitter and you go and watch their stream and it's like they're quiet. They're not engaging. They're grumpy a lot of the time. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me to blame discoverability on Twitch. And like, is it even going to help you? Like, yes, getting your stream in front of more eyes would, if that was the case and that was the only thing that was going on, would directly probably lead to you getting more exposure and having more chances to, to reel people in. But if everybody's getting their stream pushed towards multiple people, then it's just the same thing as it is now where you're competing with people's for people's attention no matter what anyway. If everybody is getting discoverability increases, does it does it actually translate to more people? All it would do, I would say, is pull viewers away from the top streamers on Twitch. That's pretty much the only option because Twitch is like a pool of people, right? And so the, the majority of people on, or a large number of people on Twitch are only watching the top 1% of streamers, whatever you want to say. So the only effect that giving everybody discover, equal discoverability would have is pulling down those numbers and redistributing them elsewhere. And I don't know if that's good. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's really the thing that you want to do. So I do want to reiterate here, this is all like on the individual level. This is not me saying, this is just for the individual level. If somebody is not being 100% honest with themselves about what they could be improving, of course, stuff like systematic racism, people with disabilities, being born into poverty, take this with a grain of salt because I, I'm not saying that everybody is born into equal opportunity because obviously that's not the case. So I just want to, I'm stressing this a lot and I'm overqualifying this a lot because I don't want people to think I'm sitting there like, come on, you know, like, sure, you started your poker game with only one card instead of two, but you still have the same chance as everybody. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is for the majority of people who don't suffer from these issues, we need to be better about looking critically and, and sitting there and I used to raid a lot of people when I was when I was starting to grow in Fall Guys. I would end every stream with a raid of somebody I didn't know because I didn't have many friends in the scene at the time. And and there were a large number of people on the platform who I would raid and they just weren't paying attention or, you know, weren't weren't very engaging or their content was kind of boring or whatever, you know, like. So to so to say like, oh, yeah, no, that's Twitch's fault. It's like, no, man, like. Twitch will get those people in the door, just like a raid will get those people in the door. But ask anybody who's been raided, it doesn't change your stream forever for the most part. Like you might experience some growth. If somebody with one viewer um, gets raided by somebody like Ninja or Shroud or somebody ma or Pokimane or somebody massive, yeah, of course, they're probably going to experience some growth, but it's not going to be the thing that keeps them relevant on Twitch forever. You have to constantly be working, constantly be changing and improving your approach and your and your content and refining and iterating. And I think what happens is people, this is sort of the issue, you know, I had with, with the ad thing where people were like, I shouldn't have to work 160 hours a month. And it's like, that's a full-time job. Yes, you do. You want to succeed. You want to make streaming on Twitch, you know, like your job forever, but you don't want to work full-time hours. Like I get it. Not everybody can, but if you can't work full-time hours, why would you think that, you're going to get full-time money out of this, you know? And, and even if you do, and again, even that approach is flawed because this isn't a nine to five. It's not, you go in, you clock in, you turn on your stream, you clock out, you make X amount of money. That's not how it works. And it shouldn't be how it works. I don't think. Um, so wanting, you know, this certain baseline level of, you know, whenever somebody says like, you know, Twitch streamers should unionize. It's like, what, what possible negotiating power do we have? Number one, number two, 
why would you try and take away the competitive spirit of the platform just so that people could do this job without having to put in as much work as I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Like you're trying to correlate work to, you know, output to financial gain one-to-one and it, it just doesn't work like that. And there's so many, there's so many things in life that you could do if you were looking for that kind of security and that kind of job experience. But I don't understand why people are taking that attitude towards something that's a creative medium. Imagine if it was like, well, I sat there practicing piano for like four hours today. So I should, I should get four hours worth of finance or, or fans or whatever. It's no, it, and so this is where I think the hard work, hard work versus luck dichotomy is, is a very important conversation to have because look at me, man. Like I spent four and a half years on Twitch relatively stagnant because I didn't switch my approach at all. And I was learning stuff, but when I got an opportunity with Fall Guys, I I changed things and I, I iterated on my own self and I was honest with myself and said, like, this is what I haven't been doing well. I didn't sit there and say, like, oh, man, like, I shouldn't have to self-promote. I shouldn't have to do this, that, and the other thing. Twitch should just promote for me and my content's good enough right now and people who don't get it are stupid and if more people see my stream, more of them will understand my content is great. It's like, no, I had to change what I did. You know, I had to, I had to branch out. I had to put myself in uncomfortable situations. I had to be more of a social creature than I would naturally be otherwise. I had to compete in, in, in legit tournaments, like competitions, not even compete it from a job standpoint. But all of that was in service to changing my approach to Twitch. And I found my success. And then when I stopped succeeding, you can, I can barely, and I did this in my, my previous episode, I very clearly can lay out exactly what I did wrong, um, and how I could do better for next time. And you'll notice whenever I, you know, I'm, I'm my, I like to be my own harshest critic in a lot of ways. And a lot of people think that's unhealthy and it, and it very much can be like, I have not always been the most healthy about, you know, lambasting myself and, and being hard on myself. But the, the healthy way I think, or the healthy way that I'm trying to go about it now is give myself notes. Sure. Criticize, you know, but do something with that criticism. Don't just say like, oh, this was bad. You know, don't listen to my first podcast episode. I had to do this, by the way. Don't listen to my first podcast episode and be like, oh man, like I stutter so much. This is so bad. It's never going to work. Be like, I stutter so much. What can I do to change that? Okay. I can make better notes maybe, or I could rehearse what I'm going to say beforehand on my walks and like really talk it out and sort of get a flow for how the podcast is going to go. As you can probably tell, this episode was really hard for me to structure. I've been stammering a lot. I know. Um, and I, even on, I, I talked about this basically the whole week, every walk, I would go out and I would talk, hit the same talking points and I could never really figure out a way to present it in a way that I thought was really concise and and good. Um, but I kept trying and I'm still, and I'm still going to release my episode. And from this, I'm going to learn stuff. Um, and that's important. And obviously I can't tell who's being hundred percent honest with themselves. Only that person can tell, but I think it's very disingenuous to say like discoverability is the reason I'm not growing on Twitch or Twitch needs to do better on X, Y, and Z because I shouldn't have to, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I mean, and then like, if that's the approach you want to take, fine, but then don't be mad at people who succeed in a different way. You know what I mean? Like there haven't been a lot of people who have just been stubborn sticks in the mud about a system that they're in and then rise to the top. I'm not saying there aren't activists who, who call for change and stuff like that, who are, who have big platforms, but I mean, most people are only going to complain about stuff that relates to them specifically. There've been tons of people in tons of different avenues in my life, you know, whether it's working in a warehouse or working in an administrative role or on Twitch or, you know, situations I'm hearing about with friends 
where people are just trying really hard to do as little as possible. And I think the the dichotomy of hard work versus luck, it, like I said, it's a chicken and egg scenario. You need both. I get into rivals the first time. That's a lucky opportunity, but I don't have that opportunity if I didn't put the hard work in the first time. I get super lucky when after it, well, not super lucky, but I get lucky again, you know, and I, uh, when I get invited to my next Twitch Rivals with Mr. Llama and I meet Mr. Llama and Miss Kylie and then I, and then I self-sabotage there. And so I, I got the luck. The luck gave me an opportunity, but I didn't capitalize on it. And I think that's where like luck doesn't just guarantee you success. Getting lucky doesn't guarantee, like the, the, um, the lottery example is a great one. You know, you win the lottery and most people who win the lottery end up broke. They had like the, talk about fumbling the bag, like almost literally you had like a hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars windfall. And somehow you still ended up broke, you know? Um, and again, you could sit there and be like, well, I just didn't learn about this in school. And it's like, yeah, but at some point you had the money to hire an accountant, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. So obviously this goes both ways. And like I said, for folks who are directly disadvantaged by truly unfortunate circumstances, I'm not talking about that. I don't want to come across as the fucking guy who's like, Oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I did it. And all I needed was a rich relative. Easy. Here's my top five ways to buy a home, save your money. Don't eat avocado toast. Stop drinking lattes every day. Don't spend the $8 a month on Twitter and also have a rich dad that gives you $10 million. Like, Obviously, that's not that's not the point. And I hope nobody's taking it as the point. I know I'm harping on this a lot. I apologize. It's just I feel the need to overqualify this stuff because because it's important. And I don't want people to think that I'm saying like, oh, just figure it out, dude. It's easy. Now, of course, there are things in life where, you know, what the I've been thinking also about how this relates to the underdog story, right? Most people love an underdog story. And I've been thinking about why as it relates to this. And I think it's because at least for me, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I would imagine it's similar across the board where seeing somebody overcome adversity is like one of the most inspiring things, seeing somebody who can be disabled and lead a successful career in something that otherwise seems pretty, uh, pretty, you know, impossible for them. That's amazing. Like Terry Fox is a Canadian legend. Most people might've heard of him. Some might not. He had cancer and had to have his leg amputated. And he was like a very promising young athlete, um, and so he committed to walking across Canada on this prosthetic leg to raise awareness for cancer and, and, and to do stuff like that. And it was like, he was a national icon and he didn't, he didn't even get halfway because he succumbed to his cancer, unfortunately, rest in peace. But that kind of story is so inspiring for people. And I think if, if you look critically at why that story is inspiring for people, you could try and you would definitely understand why, like, it's so touching to see like somebody who is so disadvantaged in many ways coming from abject poverty or overcoming racism there's how many how many movies have you seen about you know people breaking the color barrier and how inspiring is that shit because it's amazing and it's a true story of human strength in the face of adversity you know so i think if you look at that and you should try and stay inspired by stuff like that try to stay in in a position where you're like yes i can do this you know and I'm not saying like sit there and be you, you don't default to the classic like whoa whoa your problems aren't that bad cuz like somebody else has it worse everybody's going to have their own problems. Everybody's going to care the most about stuff that relates to them for the most part. Do your best, but be honest with yourself. If something doesn't go your way, what can you do? And sometimes, yeah, there's going to be stuff. There's going to be situations where you can never do anything. But most of the time, I would say for most people who don't have these like crazy disadvantages, you, you can probably do something. 
And from the last example I'll leave you with is um, when I worked in the warehouse, this is before I did my full-time streaming for the first time. When I worked in the warehouse, I worked there for three years. The first year I was a temp and then I got hired on a permanent basis. And in those last two years, I got passed over four times for promotions. And I would give myself, I, I had a routine, right? I would give myself five minutes to be upset and, and kind of sulk about it a little bit. And then I would schedule a sit down that afternoon with the, the manager who was in charge of promotions. And I would ask them what I could have done better, what I wasn't doing well enough, you know, stuff like that. And I got some really good constructive feedback that I incorporated into my performance at work. And then the last one, the last time, the fourth time I got passed over, the, re the response was basically like, well, this guy, you know, he, he's been here three months longer than you. So that's why we had to promote him instead of you. And that to me was like, that sucked for me. But as you know, I can totally understand the employer's point of view there, because if you have two people of equal skill that are equally viable to promote, you know, how are you going to pick one? And seniority is as arbitrary as a tiebreaker as there is, but it, you know, they're all pretty arbitrary at that point. Um, after you get out of the, you know, after you stop considering, after you have to get past tiebreak merit, basically. Um, and so I totally understood why it was obviously a super bummer. And, but it was at that point where it was like, okay, so I have a choice to make here, right? I was working a job that was paying me $13 an hour full time. I was living on my own. Um, I've been financially independent and below the poverty line since I was 18. Um, and so I, I had a decision to make. I could continue doing this and, and lamp, uh, you know, languishing away at this job and trying my best and feeling like I was getting overworked, or I could do the, what's the sports thing and bet on myself. So in sports, when an athlete bets on themselves, they enter their last year of their contract and rather than negotiate, they wait until after the season to negotiate because they're like, I'm going to play my ass off this season, show you, rack up a bunch of cool stats and show you that I'm worth more money than you would probably offer me right now. And there are situations where athletes have done this and succeeded extremely well and gained massive contracts as a result. And there are situations where that season didn't go very well for the athlete. So they kind of tanked their own stock a little bit and didn't get as big contracts. So I bet on myself and I left. Um, about six months after that, I headed up a destruction project, which the idea behind me heading this up was to see, test my leadership capabilities. I finished it two weeks ahead of schedule with the team that I had, I was given, I had one of the employees, my manager directly said to me, you know, like, we've never seen this guy work this hard. How did you do it? Not to, you know, I'm talking my shit a little bit here, but, um, so I had all this stuff happen and this is to give context for when I went into sort of the debrief after this was all done, they were like, yeah, we're still not sure. We're still not sure if that really like puts you head and shoulders above the competition. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll make it easier. Here's my two weeks. I'd been interviewing for jobs at that point and I had one that I was going to take. It ended up not being a great job. The one that, that was the one that, uh, that I worked right before I went full time for the first time. But so I could have sat there and said like, oh man, unlucky, you know, I'll just wait for next time. There's nothing I could do. I just got to wait my turn. Or I could take matters in my own hands, bet on myself if I'm confident that I'm going to be able to put in the work somewhere else and provide an org another organization with something that they don't have. And I could go out and do that. And then that led to me getting the bug for full-time streaming. So yes, I could look in, in isolation and say like me getting passed over for that promotion was unlucky, 100%. Or I could say, well, it led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And I have so much control over what I did there. I left a job. And yes, I know a lot of people might not feel comfortable leaving jobs, but I got a new job, even though I was below the poverty line, which was comparable pay. It wasn't more, it wasn't, I don't think it was much more. I think it was like one or 2000 more a year, which is not much over the course of the year. Um, 
And as a result of that, I was in a position where I could start thinking about, you know, like start thinking about my future, you know, as a result of this situation, I changed my approach and I left and I did that uncomfortable thing where I had to go and I had to leave work half a day early, you know, to, so I had to come in like three hours early so that I could work, you know, a half day. Cause I needed to do a, an interview at, at noon and downtown. And my job was like an hour and a half outside of downtown. So like I had to do all this shit and it was, it was a really rough couple of weeks, but I got the new job. And even when that job didn't work out, then I was like, okay, I'm going to try full-time streaming, you know? So it's really like the context changes and whether something was lucky or unlucky changes depending on how much context you include. And that's why I don't think it's a really healthy thing to blame um, as a habit. But anyway, I've rambled about this enough. This has been kind of a ramblier episode. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, next week's topic hopefully will be a little bit more concise and clear. But thank you all for listening very much. Appreciate it. This episode was sponsored by myself because, you know, I get 12 downloads a week. So what are you going to do? But I've, I really appreciate everybody who, who listens uh, and everybody who gives their feedback on this. Um, by all means, let me know, you know, what you think. If you agree or disagree, I just vomited my opinion at you for however long. I can't see the clock, but... I just vomited my opinion at you for 30 plus minutes. So it's only fair that you guys can absolutely talk back to me. Find me on Twitter, although that might not be a permanent thing for very long, depending on how Mr. Elon takes the platform. Uh, but these at the Spark City for now, you can find me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Spark City. Um, and if you find me on Twitch and you want to join my Discord, go into my chat and type exclamation mark Discord and follow that link. Uh, let me know what you think. And I hope everybody has a great week. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening again. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye.